This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. You know, something that we talk a lot about here in Chicago, including on this show, that's segregation. Not just how divided the city's neighborhoods can be, but how different your experience can be from one block to another. And it's more than just a physical separation. Residents being pushed out, declining student enrollment, school closures, loss of wealth in the community. Advocates say these events have their roots in segregation. And few places know that better than Chicago's Englewood community. Earlier this week, we talked about the closure of the Whole Foods in Englewood. The store's presence helped turn the tide of disinvestment in the area. And today we are extending that conversation and taking a dive into another form of disinvestment, and that's predatory housing practices. Here to give us more insight on the domino effect it's having on the neighborhood is Amber Hendley, researcher with Woodstock Institute and also co-author of the report, The Plunder of Black Wealth in Chicago, New Findings on the Lasting Toll of Predatory Housing Contracts. Hi, Amber. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Also with us to talk about efforts to counter this legacy and build thriving communities is Aisha Butler, Executive Director of the Resident Association of Greater Englewood, or RAGE. Welcome back to the show, Aisha. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. So we'll talk with you for a little bit here first, Amber. Uh, first of all, when we talk about predatory housing practices in Englewood, what exactly are we talking about here? So, well, there were many, but the one that I'm going to speak to today is uh, contract selling, Okay. which um, due to redlining black, pe- black families in Englewood and other areas across Chicago and across the United States could not access mortgages through the traditional systems. Um, so their, their community areas were redlined. And at that point, white speculators who either already owned property or had these really um, creative ways of getting property at low cost designed this secondary um, housing market for black families. So knowing that they would not be able to access traditional mortgages, they would approach uh, black families and say, hey, um, I can sell to you. I'll sell to you this home or I'll sell this home to you. Mm-hmm. And what they would use is a contract for deed instead of a traditional mortgage, obviously, because they could not go through the mortgage, um, could not go through the savings and loans at the time. So these contracts stated that um, if a black home buyer, well, air quotes, home buyer, because this was more so a rent to own contract versus an actual mortgage or a deed um, transfer. It would state that if um, a black home buyer missed one payment, they would forfeit all monies um, and they would not build any equity until they paid the last payment. Mm. So if they missed again, if they missed one payment, they forfeited everything. So they were forced into these contracts. How was this allowed? Um, Well, there was there was (laughs) there were no regulations around this. Obviously, the, the regulations were not to allow a black family to buy a home with the red line by redlining the area and saying that that area was too risky to lend to. But if a white person had attempted to purchase a home in a redlined area, they would have been given a mortgage. So the systems were meant to create this type of secondary market. There were no protections or regulations. You uh, you co-authored a report that looked at how many black families entered this kind of contract and how much wealth that actually took from the community. How do you measure that kind of loss? Um, So we measured it the best that we could. It's a very conservative value. But what we looked at were court records um, and the recorder of deeds records to identify homes that were sold on contract 
to understand what the white specular, speculator actually paid for the home versus what they charged the black home buyer for the home. Um, and so what we would do is look at traditional um, SHA mortgage terms and requirements during that time. And we just figured out what the cost of the home would have been for the white seller, given those um, those SHA mortgage terms, and then with the cost to the black home buyer with those same terms, mm. just to make it one for one. And when I say this was very conservative, um, that wasn't what actually happened. Interest rates were higher for black families, but just to be consistent, just for consistency, um, we use this just the the interest rate cap of five point seven percent when we really did see that some black home buyers were charged a seven or a six percent interest rate for those homes. But we calculated the difference between what the cost of the home was given those terms a white buyer paid versus uh -huh. what a black buyer paid. And we figured out what the difference was on average for the homes in our data set. Interesting. Aisha, let's bring you into the conversation. What is it like for you hearing this and, and knowing this history? Um, when we first embarked on this conversation with Amber and um, actually did a report and showed the documentary, The Color Tax, doing our housing tax force, I mean, um, for us, we knew some of the particulars that were happening in terms of, um, you know, discrimination against Blacks and what happened in Inglewood. But I think um, actually seeing it in black and white um, or learning how much equity and wealth was actually extracted from our community, of course, had us, you know, just kind of up in arms and really saddened because these are many of our grandparents, our great-grandparents, and um, really, really paints the picture of why so many of us now, um, so many folks have been very reluctant to um, even think about home ownership. Mm. So, and for us, um, we don't take data and information lightly. We look for solutions. And so one of the solutions that we have, um, you know, deployed um, since, we of hearing about this and the work that we were doing is our Buy the Block program, which we hope is a, a campaign of aspiration so that not only could you buy one home in Inglewood, you could possibly buy your entire block. And I think that uh, messaging and kind of this psychological um, reimagining um, home ownership in Inglewood is some of the work that we wanted to do and then put that in practical application. Mm. Amber, in, in your report, um, you note that to, to pay the high monthly rates for their homes, people were working long hours to make um, enough enough money and, and often had to forego basic repairs even, and that led to a decline in the value of the home. Your report actually refers to this as a, a quote, self-fulfilling prophecy. So explain what that means and how it connects to vacant lots and abandoned buildings that are in Englewood today. So because these homes were forced into this situation, what our report doesn't speak to. Um, so another, I like to point out that our report is an underestimate of what actually happened. Incomes, black, white incomes are about 60% 60, 60 to 100%. So the losses that were felt, that $80,000 average per house that, that um, in today's dollars, what, that's how it would feel to a white family. But a black family making 60% of that income, it feels like $135,000 loss. And so when you treat these communities and these family members and then their homes in this way, mm -hmm. 
that's what's going to happen long term because you can't catch up when you're at a deficit. You may pay for this home. You may actually, because not every home uh, contract buyer was able to, to pay their home and to make those payments and to work those long hours and make ends meet in that way. But if they did, they did so at a loss of about $135,000. So just like you said, you cannot make repairs, but you also don't get the benefit of home equity, which is home improvement using the equity because your home does not appreciate in value like it is supposed to. So you can't borrow against your home for home improvement or college costs or debt consolidation or emergency expenses, wedding expenses or business expenses. Yeah. In your view, Aisha, how does this all contribute to population loss and, and that declining enrollment in schools? Yeah, I mean, all of it is um, aligned together and all of it is, um, unfortunately, has been a, just a systematic system that has just marginalized folks out of areas and, and in communities. Um, we saw it show up in plenty of ways through um, the foreclosure crisis because not only do we kind of fast forward to what's happening now, um, there were additional predatory lending uh, practices that were done um, in our day and age. And so with those um, practices, many people uh, were given these loans and these mortgages and have had to resort to foreclosure, which has to resort to empty spaces and empty buildings. Um, in addition to that, um, you know, unfortunately, our community have not had the best reputation with the best schools and, and of course, some of these other underlining issues with housing. Um, and so folks are looking elsewhere for sanity. You know, folks are looking elsewhere for quality of life. Um, it's, a, it's a lot of great momentum here, but a lot of folks are um, traumatized by generationally traumatized by what has happened. And so when you start seeing the underutilization remarks about these generational schools, um, people are just kind of fed up. And, and um, unfortunately, it's reflected in our population loss. Yeah. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you are just tuning in, we're discussing the legacy of segregation and racist housing practices leading to population loss and declining CPS enrollment in Englewood. Our guests are Amber Henley, who's a researcher with Woodstock Institute and uh, director of the African-American Leadership and Policy Institute. Also, Aisha Butler, who's executive director of RAGE, the Resident Association of Greater Englewood. Aisha, sticking with you here, as we've talked about, Englewood has seen its share of school closures. You've even been on this show before talking about how that can just destabilize entire yeah. communities. You are doing something about it, though. Can, can you talk about the projects that you're involved in that are kind of repurposing the schools that have closed? Yeah, I mean, this was, um, I always talk about some of the projects that we decide to take on that are really large, complex issues. And I think when um, we had the mass school closing in 2013, of course, Inglewood was hit with some of the most, you know, school closings in our area. We lost six schools at that time. And I was in school um, at the time, and I, was, I just wanted to examine how the loss of these institutions 
could be possibly repurposed to really revive our economics here and really get people to, you know, if they're used to that space, they're used to that institution, there's always been a safe space for them. How could community be at the forefront to repurpose those things? So we did a lot of research. We listened to a lot of people in the community. We got a lot of great ideas. And this is back in 2014, 2015, um, to the point that we've actually started working on repurposing some of the schools that were left vacant. Yeah. Uh, we had one one deal that didn't fall through at Bond Temps, but uh, right now, currently, we're working with the Gold Green Development Team as partners to repurpose one of the schools that are located at 62nd and Racine. Nice. Um, this would be housing for individuals who are uh, returning citizens to our community. This will also be a social um, hub, um, a clinic. And so all those things now we are thinking through and working as developers to, to breathe life in these schools. My, my, my brother graduated from that school. My mother was on the LSD. And so people have memories and um, um, connections and roots to a lot of the institutions that we lose. And we're just trying to make sure that we don't lose those things and yeah. they can be um, having new life. Amber, is there anything that you want to see shift on a structural level to really just shore up these community efforts? Absolutely. Um, so one of the things I want um, uh, lending institutions and the federal, the government as it exists to rethink how um, wealth is the number one or home ownership is the number one driver of wealth in this country. And that's fine if this is a capitalist country that we live in and that's the structure that we build it on. But what has to be accounted for are the policies, the legal policies that targeted black families, black individuals, and to understand as Asia stated, there is some type there's there's a sort of trauma induced feeling that comes when you think about inter, um, becoming a homeowner for a lot of young black up and comers, if you will, because we have watched what has happened. I know about contract selling, but after that there was urban renewal and after that the subprime market crisis. And then after that there's in, there's issues with credit scores. Yeah. And Black borrowers being able to access the same type of mortgage products as their white counterparts. Mm. So if this is what we are going to say is the way that Americans will build wealth, that has to be accounted for. And how you when, when the federal government is responsible for that traumatic relationship with home ownership, it's not to just say, hey, you know, that's how we build wealth. You guys get out here, do what, do what everybody else is doing. Has to be something different for this specific demographic that was targeted for generations. So that is one thing they ha the banks have to figure out what to do to account for that. Yeah. Um, then there's this loss that I just spoke about, one hundred thirty-five thousand dollars that was felt in the fifties through the seventies, but that debt was transferred onto the families because now there are these student loan debts that mm -hmm. are <laughs> that are like disproportionately pushed on black it's a domino students. effect yeah it 100% it, it is because other families can borrow against their homes we could not so it's these things that it's it, just because this happened back then we have to trace it to present day and understand if we want to tackle truly this black white wealth gap there are targeted policies that mm. need to be put in place that speak to black concerns because the issues were targeted towards black people. Yeah, we'll have to leave it there. That is Amber Henley, researcher at Woodstock Institute, and also with us, Aisha Butler, executive director of RAGE. Thank you both. 
Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.